Well, good morning, Gateway. Um, I'm, for those of you who are new with us, I'm Ed. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to read what, a passage that's very familiar to most of you, and we'll end with a verse that may be the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. We're going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Leo's going to read that for us from the New International Version. And uh, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. John 3, 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me say my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, worth, it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You may be seated. Thank you, Leah. Uh, Dr. Stephen Prothro is a professor of religion at Boston University. He's not a believer, and Dr. Prothro and I don't agree on many things about religion, but we do agree on the main thesis from his book, his New York Times best-selling book, God is Not One. I want you to listen to the first paragraph. It's the uh, first paragraph of his introduction. You'll get the idea of his thesis. At least since the first petals of the counterculture bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and all are true. Now, no one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. Capitalism, socialism, so obviously at odds, their differences hardly bear mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy. Yet scholars continue to claim that religious rivals such as Hinduism and Islam, Judaism and Christianity are, by some miracle of the imagination, essentially the same. And this view resounds in the echo chamber of popular culture. Now, Dr. Prothro then spends an entire 
well-researched and elegantly written book disputing the ridiculous claim that all religions are essentially the same. He rightly says that that idea is an offense to all religions. All religions are not the same. They believe very different things about God, about human beings, and about the world. And those differences have a profound impact on the way we actually live. Now, we all want to live in a world where religious adherents don't kill one another. That's one of the drivers behind this popular and ridiculous idea. We don't want Muslims in Northern Africa to kill Christian villages, villagers, and we don't want Hindus in Northern India to attack Christian churches and church leaders, and Christians aren't immune, by the way, to mistreating other religious people. But we don't get to that world the, the world where we can live at peace with one another. We don't get to that world by ignoring the reality of the differences in religious beliefs. And since religions are different, that means that many, hold on, that means that many religious ideas are wrong. By definition, this has to be the case. It can't, it can't be everything. They can't all be right since they disagree with one another on some very fundamental ideas. God can't both be limited in his power and in his approach, and unlimited. God can't be removed and observing his world and deeply involved in every part of his world. He can't be all of that. Now, over the next three weeks, here on Sunday morning at, at Gateway in our services, and over the next eight weeks in our now groups, and I hope that you've signed up for a now group, in our now groups, we're going to discuss some of the basics of what we believe as Christians. It'll be exciting for us to learn this, or for many of us, it will be exciting to review it, and it'll be good for all of us, but it's also critical. These ideas, as I said, make a profound difference in how we actually live. They shape our view of God, our view of the world, our view of ourselves. So let's begin this morning at the very, very beginning. You can't get more basic than the idea that we're going to talk about today. Plus, listen to this, you won't get anywhere in your relationship with others, in your understanding of yourself, and especially in your connection to God, if you don't understand what we're going to talk about today. And by the way, this idea is so rich and profound, we, we literally never get to the end of understanding it. Our entire lives are spent tracing this idea and then filling in the details of it and learning to apply it. And as we do so, we come to accept ourselves and others more and more deeply, and we are more and more able to live lovingly and helpfully with others. So, what is this fundamental life-changing idea? Well, here we go. Jesus demonstrates God's love. Jesus demonstrates God's love in Every word of that is profound. Uh, let's, let's back up. Let's start back at the embryo stage of this idea. There, there is no culture in recorded human history that hasn't practiced some form of religion. But the ancient world, generally speaking, had very different views of God than the Christian view. Their gods were, first of all, many, multiple gods, and, and their gods were fickle. One religion scholar put it like this. Listen to this, quote, 
One could define polytheistic deities, multiple gods. One could define polytheistic deities of antiquity as superhuman entities that displayed both the best and the worst attributes of human nature. Everything that humans did, the gods seemingly did to an extreme, end quote. It's interesting. So the gods could be benevolent and good, or they could be petty and vindictive, and often you didn't know why. That meant that ancient religion was largely about figuring out how to satisfy the gods and keep them from being petty and vindictive. And it's against that backdrop that the Jews began to claim and believe that there was only one God of the whole universe, of, of every nation, every tribe, of, of the whole, all of nature, and that this God had revealed himself to them. He had shown them something of what he is actually like. And as we read the Old Testament, it becomes clear that the Jews get this somewhat, more or less, in fits and starts. Sometimes they seem to live out of a right understanding of the one true God, and many times they ignore that understanding completely. And, and it points, uh, actually, all along, there, there are gaps and then Jesus appeared. And what did Jesus show us about God? Well, let's, let's drop in on Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus that Leah read for us because it has a lot to say about this topic. Now, as I said, this story is familiar to most of you. In John 3.16, very familiar to most of you. It's on a sign at most football games somewhere. It may be the most famous verse in the Bible. So who is this Nicodemus, and what does this interaction show us? Well, Dr. Nicodemus was a well-respected religious leader, something like a religion professor. He was, a, he was very well-versed in Old Testament ideas about God, and he was a well-known teacher of those ideas throughout Israel, evidently. Now, the most natural reading of the first part of, of this passage that Leah read for us, the first 15 verses, is that at this point, uh, Dr. Nick was not particularly open to the whole truth that was being suggested by Jesus' life and his teaching. He was clearly interested and respectful, but the signs that, that Dr. Nick points to, they didn't trigger faith for him. They did for others, by the way, but not for Nicodemus. In, in Nicodemus's mind, they seem to be just a conversation starter. Now, I think it's fascinating that he ultimately came to side with Jesus later in his life, and he probably became one of Jesus' followers. But in this passage, he's definitely not there yet, and that's an important observation for us. He came to see Jesus at night. Did you notice that? And we don't know, I, I mean, was this... Was this standard practice for Nicodemus? Other extra-biblical texts made it clear that this was the habit of many rabbis to debate and argue well into the night. Or was he looking for cover, not wanting to be openly associated with Jesus? We don't know for sure, but we do know that Nicodemus was deeply respectful. He called Jesus rabbi, and this is a stretch for someone like Nicodemus. And he acknowledges that something of God is involved in Jesus' activities, but we also know, as I said, this was not real faith. That's an important observation. I mean, many cults 
And many religions believe this much about Jesus. And what do I mean by this was not real faith? Well, for one thing, there's no acknowledgement of Jesus' preexistence. There's no acknowledgement of his essential oneness with God. I want you to take a look at the uh, opening of John's biography, the, the very first five verses. You see, this is what uh, real faith affirms. But you get none of this from Nicodemus. Plus, Nicodemus didn't suggest that Jesus was even a prophet, much less the prophet or the Messiah. And according to Dr. Nick, Jesus is simply a teacher, mightily endowed with God's power. There's also no acknowledgement of the grace of God or the love of God incarnate or in the body of this person. Now, Nicodemus was openly curious about Jesus, but this curiosity fell far short of real faith. By the way, some of you may be in a similar place this morning. And I have prayed that God would literally draw you towards himself by what you hear today. Now, scholars are almost unanimously agreed that the real essence, don't miss this, the real essence of this whole exchange was actually Dr. Nick, the religion professor, assessing Jesus. He was very interested in what he had heard, profoundly interested in some of the miraculous occurrences that seemed to follow Jesus around, and he wanted to know, who, who is this man? He wanted to assess Jesus to see if he was, if he was kosher. If everything was copacetic. And by the time Dr. Nick finished his introduction, go back to the first um, three verses, if you would, or the first few verses. By the time Dr. Nick finished his introduction, there's no actual question that's been asked. But it's clearly implied, right? We've heard amazing things. If all that we've heard is true, then the hand of God is clearly with you, Rabbi. So who are you? Can, can you explain yourself, Jesus? Can you justify this activity can you show me some kind of miracle? This is what Nicodemus was really getting at. And let me try to prove it to you. Uh, I want you to look at this verse. The, the, I've got John 2, 18. Thanks, Tom. Look at this verse. This happened in the incident right before Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. It's pretty clear that Nicodemus is bringing this same question to Jesus. In fact, he may have been representing the whole Jewish leadership community at this point. He probably was more savvy than most of them. He's also more sympathetic to Jesus. You can imagine a group of the Jewish leaders getting together and saying, look, Nicodemus, you give it a try. You go talk to him. You're more diplomatic than us, and you even have great respect for him. Maybe you'll get somewhere. Like the other Jewish leaders, Nicodemus wants to set up criteria to assess who Jesus is. Do you see the dynamic here? I'm reminded of my own attitude toward Jesus at many points in my life. Arms crossed. Show me what you got, miracle worker. This is what's going on in my life. What are you, you going to do about it? As I said, very respectful, very polite, even intrigued. By the way, I suspect some of you are approaching faith like that this morning. But Jesus would have none of it. He rejected 
the priority of Nicodemus. He rejected the assumed spiritual rank of Nicodemus, and he even dared to question Dr. Nicodemus' real expertise concerning what Jesus called heavenly things. Look again at the opening that Leah read for us, verses 1 through 3. Nicodemus was claiming that he could see something of who Jesus was in the miracles, but look, Jesus insisted that no one can see the sovereign reign of God, that's what kingdom of God means, including the display of miraculous signs unless they are born again. Now a sidebar. Uh, to a Jew with the background and convictions of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God, that was the ultimate thing. That was essentially equal to participation in the, in the great kingdom at the end of the age and to experience eternal resurrection life. The kingdom of God was a big stinking deal. In a real sense, his entire life, his training, his belief systems, his, his actions, were all aimed at that one thing. So imagine how unsettling or, or even irritating Jesus' statement would have been. We don't have time to walk through the whole episode here in the exchange. I wish we did. There's, there's rich stuff in this exchange in what Jesus says. In Jesus' details about being born of water and spirit, of, of like giving birth to like, of the movement of the wind as an analogy of God's movement in our lives. I mean, this is where Jesus blows Nick, Nicodemus's mind. And I think in this exchange, we even begin to see the first elements of real faith in Nicodemus. It's fascinating. I encourage you to take a deep dive into it at some point, but that's not central to to our point today. Today, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is suggesting. Jesus is suggesting that we need a whole new operating system if we're going to experience God. A whole new operating system if we're going to experience God. That's a 21st century translation of Jesus' born-again analogy and his kingdom of God language. Uh, we need a new operating system. We don't need some new apps. We don't need to download a new prayer app or a new be a good person app or a new go to church app. We don't need a, new, uh, we don't need a software update. I grew up in church. I kind of always believed I just need to get back to it. Now, we, we need a whole new operating system. The entire organization structure, the architecture of the computer itself has to be changed if we're going to experience God. He's going to invade and rearrange our mind, our heart, and our will. Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. All right. Pause for dramatic effect. Uh, this is the heavenly truth that, that Jesus doesn't think Dr. Nick is even prepared to understand. And so that's a long uh, involved setup for our purposes today. Because we need to ask, what then? Once this happens, then what? What, 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 what was Nicodemus beginning to experience the edges of even in this conversation? What, what do we experience when we experience God? What, what happens when we're, we're born again? What do, what do we encounter Well, we can't fully answer that question, of course, but we can unlock the very important first part of what we experience when we experience God. 
So first of all, I want you to notice from this passage what isn't here. When I was growing up, by the way, this is the way I felt about religion. So let's notice what is not in Jesus' charge and his challenge to Nicodemus. There There is no list of rules. There's no set of behaviors. Jesus offered mind-bending inspiration, and there were subversive ideas that broke down Nicodemus' defenses. There was deep person-to-person exchange, but there was no assessment, no judgment. There's no, no anger, no distance. In fact, the metaphor Jesus offers is intimate, very personal, uh, up close. But to fully experience answer what we experience when we really experience God, we've got to drop down to verse 16. Now, New Testament scholars are somewhat divided on what's happening in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what I mean. Some believe that this was at the end of what Jesus said to Nicodemus, but the majority of them believe that uh, at John 3, 16, John himself begins to offer his commentary on this incident with Dr. Nick, and by the way, on Jesus' whole life and ministry. And I think that's the right view. I think this is John's commentary on Jesus. That means John, Jesus' best friend, offered this as his summary and analysis of what Jesus' life means. And it gives us deep insight into what we experience when we experience God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Uh, Some of you may have heard the name Charles Spurgeon before. He's one of the best and most famous preachers in the history of the English language. And one of his most famous sermons was based on John 3.16, this verse. He divided this verse into five significant points. And I want you to hear this. One, this is the greatest love. Two, this is the greatest gift. Three, it was the greatest offer. Four, it affected the greatest security. And five, with the greatest result. Let me say that in a paragraph with a little more detail. In other words, the greatest love, which was God's love, was demonstrated in the greatest gift the gift of God the Son, from which came the greatest offer to whoever believes. This allowed for the greatest security. Since God does not change, it is eternal. And the outcome was the greatest possible result, eternal life. And Jesus made it clear. Jesus demonstrated that God is not fickle. God is not petty. And God is not a larger version of human nature. Through his teaching and his actions and his death and resurrection, Jesus made it clear that God moves toward us in love, always and eternally, at great sacrifice to himself. Jesus demonstrated God's love. It's amazing that Jesus demonstrated it, and it's amazing that God loves us. And listen, this truth has had a profound impact at a big cultural level. But please don't miss this. 
This next part, we're wrapping up. Let me, I'm just going to offer one example. Those cultures which have been heavily influenced by Christian thinking tend to be cultures which greatly value human life, human freedom, and human dignity. Of course, there are exceptions, but that's overwhelmingly the case. And that's because those cultures are saturated in the idea that God loves us. And Jesus proved it. So we're all worthwhile, all of us. And, and by the way, authoritarian regimes, they don't share that value. Cultures influenced by Islam, they don't share that value. Those are Christian values. God demonstrated his love for us in Jesus, and that truth has had a profound impact on the development of whole cultures. But that idea has had an even more profound impact on the individual soul, on you and me. Please don't miss this. Every stain, every trauma, every sin, every regret, every guilt, every worry, every shock, every crisis, every dark memory, every conflict, every shortcoming, every self-doubt, every rejection, every sin, every assault, every bent desire, every mistake, every damage, every distance, every temptation, every misunderstanding, every despair, every failing, every wrong, every neglect, every sorrow, every abandonment, every coldness, every awkwardness, every devastation, every hurt, Everything that separates us from God and from one another is swallowed up by it. They are consumed and overcome by the love of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus when and as we fully grasp it. That's why I said earlier that our entire lives are spent tracing this idea and filling in the details of it and then learning to apply it. And, so, and when we do so, we come to accept ourselves and others more and more deeply and we are more and more able to love one another healthily. God could feel many things toward us, but what he actually feels is love. And Jesus proved it. That's why he came. Uh, this week uh, at our NOW group, Andrew Lonan leads our group, and uh, he asked a really good question of our group, of which he, of course, had a great answer to. And uh, he, he talked about how, some, how someone had asked him uh, earlier in his life, when you read the Bible, what voice do you hear? And he, he started to recognize how often he hears anger or disappointment or frustration. And the voice of God is a voice of love. God loves us, and he showed it to us in Jesus. I went to, uh, I went to seminary to uh, study how to do this, how to be a pastor, and I, I'm, I'm old, so I went to, the seminary, to seminary in the 1840s. But one Sunday, uh, one of my professors, it was a seminary outside of Boston, and one Sunday, one of my professors was preaching at a really great uh, historic church downtown in Boston. It's called Park Street Church, and... I wanted to go down and hear the pastor at uh, Park Street. I, I wanted to hear him preach to this congregation. I loved this professor, and I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be something. It's going to be like it's profound. I'm going to hear something I've never heard before. So he went down. I'm, I'm, I'm all ready. I got a notebook. I'm going to take notes. And he stands up, and he, he gives this quote, which he says, you know, there's no proof of this quote, I, or I can't find proof, he says. And he could, maybe in the day of Google he could have, but... Uh, I think it's apocryphal, but 
it has been said that one time Carl Barth, who was, you don't need to know that name, but he's one of the most uh, widely respected theologians in the 20th century. He's a German theologian. He said, uh, Carl Barth was once asked, uh, what's the greatest truth you've ever thought about? Uh, newspaper reporter. And Barth said, uh, I think the greatest truth that I've ever thought about, profound German theologian, I think the greatest truth that I've ever thought about is uh, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then uh, this professor preaches a sermon about how God loves us. And I remember about how, when we first started, I was deeply disappointed. I thought, I wanted to hear something awesome. And by the end of this sermon, I was like, oh my gosh, God loves me. I want to be a Christian again. Because we never get to the end of tracing this idea. It so fundamentally shapes everything we think about ourselves, about God, about the world. Jesus demonstrated God's love. 